Hello and welcome to Man on the Clap and Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about English football and racism. There's been so many different issues that have cropped up in the last few weeks from the England versus Bulgaria game, the Haringey Borough game which was abandoned and and that's on one end of the scale and then on the other end you've had the Divokarigi banner with Liverpool fans, you've had the Bernardo Silva tweets they're both opposite ends of, of the same spectrum. There will always be the threat of racism. It it's never something that is going to be, you know, fully eradicated from, you know, humanity, as much as we all wish it could be. So at times when when discussing, you know, English football and its approach to racism, it, at times it can be comforting to sort of go to the liberal sort of view of history that we are you know constantly on a upward trend to a sunny uplands where you know this issue will no longer you know occur and that racism will be fully eradicated from football and that you know we're just working towards that and while it's tempting because you can sit there and look at the you know bad old days of the late 60s the 70s the 80s and compare it with how we are dealing with racism today, there's been so many, there's been such a huge improvement. But that's, that's an oversimplification. You know, there's, there are blind spots. There, it is far more instructive to think of it as being, it, as being a battle. It's literally the cultural equivalent of the Western Front in World War One. It is a battle inch by inch, and it is just slow fighting. It is it is a situation where you can make you know ten feet of progress on one day, and then you can lose that the next day and go nine feet back, and and it's an exhausting thought that it is simply you know a grim battle, and that eventually you feel that you, we will triumph, but it will take just a huge amount of emotional energy and there are some several ways in which we as a as sports fans have tried to do the end around we've tried to think that maybe there might be two or three things that could you know massive events that could happen that would you know break the battle wide open and that victory would be achieved and we'd finally reach that liberal linear view of history where racism is eradicated from football and eradicated from wider culture. I mean, take a look at it in this way. You've had a Cricket World Cup and you're just at the back end of the Rugby World Cup this year and there has been no you know, obvious signs of racism, there's been no controversies the closest thing you've had to controversies was um sort of dis- crowd disturbances between afghanistan cricket fans and pakistan cricket fans and the the sort of backstory behind that is that uh, afghanistan and pakistan share a border and i think it's the pashtun sort of culture extends from both the, you know both sides of the border and really both of those countries you know have you know clear links culturally, historically. However, with the rise of the Afghanistan cricket team and getting test match status, qualifying for the World Cup, most of their financial support has come from the Indian cricket board and they play their games out in India, 
which has caused tension. But that isn't so much an issue of racism, that is an issue, you know, a, a cultural issue at their end that really we're not involved in, or cricket as a wider you know, fan base and the ICC, it was something that needed to be dealt with on the day by the stewards and by the police. And will something be just noted down for, for you know future reference that that could be you know problems if you have an you know Afghanistan Pakistan game which you wouldn't have maybe thought would have happened maybe five ten years oh if Pakistan and Afghanistan were playing it would be you know a mutual respect you know much in the same way that the sort of India Pakistan games tend to be oasis of calm when actually if you look at the relationships relations between the countries is that. You know, a really tense juncture. And one of the things that I think annoys me more than anything else is when, you know, sort of cricket fans and some rugby fans sort of say, see, we don't have the problems that football does. And really what that is is that, you know, cricket and rugby, you know, due to their histories, due to, you know, you know have the luxury of being able to avoid these kind of situations by not being as culturally relevant. So the point is, is that football, because of its popularity, means that to qualify for a World Cup, you have to, you go to Bulgaria away, whereby rugby can completely ignore that. In other words, England don't go to Romania, they don't go to Georgia. If, you know, Georgia or Romania get the opportunity to play England, it's at Twickenham. You know, in other words, England don't have to go to, you know, difficult places to qualify for the Rugby World Cup. Same thing as the Cricket World Cup, because these games aren't as you know, widely played and aren't quite as important to the locals in a way that football in Eastern Europe, in Asia, all across the world. So the problem is is that football there is at the front line of it. But due to its popularity, due to its, you know, hegemony, it means it has to deal with these problems in a way that, you know, rugby and cricket are isolated because actually to go to Twickenham you have to put down a hundred pounds. You have to know someone at at the Lords, you have to pay 70, 80, 90, 100 pounds to get through the door. And as a result, you don't have anywhere near the same problems. And, uh, you know, racism in rugby and cricket, I'm sure it exists. But because it's not being played in Haringey because there's not a crowd there, you're not going to hear of it, you're not going to see of it in the same way. It's not going to be something that is going to be on, you know, the national news. And so really... When we're talking about racism in English football, it's not isolated from the rest of culture. The problem is, is that when you have the rise in, uh, you know, right wing extremism, you have a, a to a lesser extent a rise in left wing extrem- extremism. When culture in this country across the world sneezes, football will get a cold. I mean, that's guaranteed. So really, I think it's important to start off with the, you know, the Bernardo Silva tweets and the Divokarigi banner. Now, I think the problem with the Bernardo Silva situation was that there, there was a lack of consensus in that, you know, some people, you know, felt that, you know, what he was done was clumsy but not racist. Some people thought it was a racial stereotype and that, you know, he was naive or simply unaware of how it was perceived. And I think what it comes down to is is that there's an element of inconvenient conversations. 
In other words, it's particularly easy to sit there when, let's say, a Italian football crowd does monkey noises. It is very easy to sit there and say, that's awful, that's wrong, they should do something about it. However, the, I guess the next problem comes along is what happens when it's not quite as clear-cut. When, in other words, with Bernardo Silva, some people thought it was racist, some people didn't. It's a, you know, it's a teammate. It might be a broadcaster. And it becomes that much harder to sit there and actually say, oh, that guy's a really lovely guy. That's when it becomes difficult to sit there and go, oh, well, what sort of punishment do you lay? Is that worthy of a ban? It, what do you do to, to fix it when there isn't a straightforward solution? In other words, you know, it wasn't so much that, you know, it was still, I felt, what he did was wrong, and I felt if you there was a couple of other tweets that I think he's a young man who probably had some you know unconscious biases and uh, you know foolishly decided to send them out there. I don't think in the sense that he is a card carrying racist, but he's someone that definitely needs needs to know that what he did was inappropriate and that there needs to be a punishment to it, but that also needs to be basically said that that doesn't mean that we are you know putting on a, you know, he's going to have to wear a R badge on the, his jersey for the rest of the season. We're not necessarily suggesting that he is a racist, but he needs a certain amount of re-education. And, the, you know, the reaction of Pep Guardiola and the way how he, you know, dealt with this situation didn't make the situation better. And that we all, you know, it's almost a broken windows approach. Now, the broken windows approach was... Um, enacted in New York City in the late 80s and early 90s. So in other words, there was a crime epidemic, there was a murder epidemic in the city, and what they started doing was dealing with broken windows. So in other words, you would fix that one, or you would you know, find who have thrown the brick through the window and deal with them. Before these, you know, before these kids, before these young adults, teenagers, went up to the next level of crime. And you know there, you know there it's you know in parts you know controversial, but there is some academic studies that seem to suggest that that helps you know drop the crime rate in New York City, and that once you dealt with the problems on the you know street corner, it made it easier to then deal with you know the the larger situations, drugs, murder, and so on. And I think that that had that that approach would be beneficial to football. We you need to start clamping down on these things. So in other words, if an older broadcaster, it's a bit like there was some criticism of um, Graham Souness earlier in the season with regards to when he was talking about Moises Keane, and there's been some criticisms about these sort of characterisations of Paul Pogba. Now the thing is, this isn't about conducting a witch hunt to label people racist. You know, it's about education regarding biases and blind spots. The point is, is that, yes, Paul Pogba, you know, is a you know, a remarkably strong football player. You know, he can, you know, with his pace, with his power, but that is not his overall game. That is not the skill set that Paul Pogba is a top-level professional footballer. His touch, his passing, his shooting, his free kicks is far more valuable. He is a complete package of a football player. You And it's doing yourself a disservice as a pundit if you just focus on that but the point is is that part of the thing is, is this is not just a snapshot situation from just one game this is the result of 
years, decades of you know entrenched cultural stereotypes, you know, and it is exhausting to maintain sort of sloganism, you know, to basically patiently explain. But the point is, is the more that you do it, the more that you seek to educate people instead of demonising them, the more benefits there are. So that when you do get a situation like the Ron Atkinson thing, which was so far beyond the pale what he said about Marcel Desai, that's not a situation where you can patiently explain. That just needs punishment. You you just need to never be on television again, unfortunately, because that was just wrong. And that's where you, you need to start drawing lines. And it's much in the same way that you know, one of the issues with, you know, a lot of people you know, have applauded, you know, John Barnes's views about racism in the sense that, you know, it's a wider societal problem. It's not just football's problem. But then the problem is, is that if on the same track you're sitting there defending Peter Beardsley, that's where it becomes problematic. I understand that you might well be you know, good friends with Peter Beardsley. You played with him. You might not think that he is a racist. But the point is, if he is sitting there as a youth coach making racial comments to young players, there has to be you know a punishment. Yes, there has you know you can argue that there was elements of you know his own personal background that when he was at Carlisle in the late seventies when he was you know growing up in as a player that he was in a very tough environment and that, that generation of players did it was you know scrubbing the you know it was washing people's boots it was doing menial manual labor in and around the stadium cleaning out the showers sweeping the terrace it was a tough environment where coaches didn't put their arm around you they shouted at you there was you know endemic bullying it was you know lord of the flies survival of the fittest but the point is is that you can't then just decide that as a coach and as a high-profile coach, with someone who was so famous, you know, a part of you know, Newcastle success in the 90s, who was a local legend, you can't then just decide that actually you're going to be Gunnery Sergeant Hartman when you are, you know, coaching kids who don't have, who don't need to have that in their lives. They don't need that level of abuse or the sense that actually they need to be toughened up, which is, you know, just ridiculous. And there were so many warning signs. But that's it. It is a sense that you have to pick up these issues and, you know, that you have to then start setting lines and being nuanced to say that probably, again, I don't think Peter Beardsley is a card-carrying racist. However, you do need, you know, he needs to be punished. He needs to have a ban from football if he ever wants to get back into it. He needs to realise that the world has moved on from Carlisle 1979 and that if you're going to coach... You can coach without bullying. I mean, look at the damage that's been caused with the Aston Villa, with um, you know Gareth Farrelly coming out and saying, you know, his experiences growing up as a player, the experiences of the black players, youth players at Chelsea, and you know just the horrendous damage that does to people, and that it actually to coach football players and to get youth team players up into the first team or into careers as professional footballers, it doesn't need to be. An abusive process. It doesn't. You don't need to weed out the weak. It should be entirely done on how much talent you have and your willingness and dedication, rather than are you able to take you know personal abuse and still somehow survive. 
I mean, if you take the, let's say, the Divock Origi banner, you know, I suppose the conscious point of the people that made that banner was that it was banter and that it was near to the mark, which is basically what a lot of football crowds do. It is, you know, saying things that you wouldn't say necessarily on the street or, you know, swearing or you know, being garrulous, being very laddish. And it's a difficult one because in some ways, I think specifically in British society more than perhaps maybe in sort of continental Europe, there was a sense of using football as a way, as a sort of stop valve. So in other words, a way that actually all the frustrations of the week could be let out on Saturday afternoon on the terraces and that you could then shout, you could abuse the ref, you could abuse the oppo, you could say that they're dirty northern bastards, you, they, you know, the northern crowds could call you soft southerners and that in the end we'd all go to the pub afterwards. There might even be a couple of dust-ups, you know, there might be, you know, you might give abuse to, you know, your number nine who isn't doing very well and as a result you'd be less likely to, you know, effectively kick off at work and bits and pieces like that. And maybe even going back into the sort of late 19th century, early 20th century, is that you, if you, you sat there and got all your frustrations out on a Saturday afternoon, you'd be less likely to rise up against the, you know, middle class and upper class. It's a truism, but I think it does have some relevance and some truth to it. Which as a result, because it's been sort of hard-boiled into you know, English football's DNA means that actually now that we're moving to a society which is far more tolerant and open, that actually having a large group of blokes from the age of 20 to 50 standing on a terrace, you know, becomes far more problematic. And the sense that football fans who've always traditionally used, you know, banners, you know, ironic chanting, you know, abusive chants, but in a jokey manner... The problem is, is that, as a result, they would think that the Origi banner is just banter and that you're showing support. When actually, really, when you actually look into it, it's wildly inappropriate. It is the underlying reason, you know, ethos behind it is racist. It is playing on all the cultural stereotypes about black men have existed for two, three hundred years. And the thing is, is that it's not just that it stopped at the stereotypes. People have then used those stereotypes to then justify, you know, overt, damaging, awful racism, you know, Jim Crow, apartheid. And while these, you know, fans didn't mean that, it's it shows us how far we have to go in terms of educating. And that and this is where I think you're going to get an element of blowback from fans. Is that sitting there and having to then, if you're deciding to make an ironic banner, whether you're going to offend women, whether you're going to offend any numbers of different groups, that's when people get football fans and I think that kind of subculture get annoyed. Because in the end, what they want is Saturday, go to the pub, have a few beers, go out there, get all the frustration out and then, you know, have a laugh with the mates afterwards. And that once you then start bringing in the outside world and actually that it's not 
an unfettered environment as it, as it was for your father or for your grandfather, where actually, you know, you might have several thousand people on a terrace or in a stand, and they all looked like you, talked like you, thought like you, and worked as a universal whole. That isn't going to ever come back. And as a result, if you want more people from different backgrounds to feel welcome, to actually enjoy football for what it is, which is a magnificent, wonderful sport, you're not going to have that power that you once had to you know, necessarily be so casual with other people's feelings and to just simply say, oh, well, that's banter and everyone will, you know, at the end of the day, walk off and get on with it. <laughs> And I think this neatly sort of leads on to with, you know, Spurs fans and, you know, the issue with the Y word. Now, I think the Spurs fans' adoption of that during the 50s and 60s had some benefits. I think it was a way of showing support in a much less progressive era and as a way of you know being proud of the fact that Tottenham is a you know multi a multi-ethnic multi-faith you know area you know, and, and I've read somewhere about you know sort of Jewish fans really embracing that but it's obvious now that the world has changed and that actually now using that word now in now obviously as David Cameron said you know he felt that it wasn't a crime and wasn't you know shouldn't be seen as one you know in the confines of the stadium I think my problem as a Spurs fan is that I see people using it in chance on the way to the game and it's what it is is that I think it's when it gets. When something like this gets into the, I think, the fabric of supporting a football club. So in other words, you know, it's wearing a scarf, wearing the, you know, bringing banners. It's what you did with your dad when you were a kid, when you first went to the game. And it's what happens when you go to the game, you know, on your own for the first time, you know, with your mates. And then when you bring your kids and it becomes tradition and it's become sort of, become so hardwired and in your mind you look back to you know your dad your granddad's era and you take pride in that your that Tottenham fans are welcoming and that you know anyone could be a Spurs fan and there is the the underlying implication that you know a lot of you know Jewish fans you know flock to Spurs because of the anti-semitism of other football clubs in the local area who might have been closer and more you know natural for those fans to go to in terms of you know distance and all the rest of it but the problem is is that it's done in such a blasé and insensitive manner it's assuming that everybody else will know that you're chanting that in a positive manner and that's a such a wide assumption that firstly Everyone will know that you're a Spurs fan. Everyone knows that you're going to the game. And that everyone will then be automatically aware that you don't mean this in an offensive manner. Which is what I think broadly most the fans that are using it are doing so. But 
they don't realise that actually the people at Seven Sisters Tube Station who are going in the opposite direction, who are going into London, might not know that Spurs use the Y word or have done or know the historical background. All they will see is a bunch of predominantly white British males chanting a, what some people consider a slur. So in other words, if you, let's say, were in your 70s and 80s, or in your 60s, and you've had family that have been caught up in the Holocaust, you might not, and you see that word as a slur, you're not going to have the sense of humour about it. You're, you're going to be hurt, you're going to be angry, and, and the wider implication then is that if you say, well, I didn't mean it in an offence, is that it, the judgement then for who finds it offensive is the non-Jewish white Tottenham fans shouting it. When actually, personally in my opinion, it is the Jewish community that should actually have you know, the, the say-so on you know how they... And if there is a broad consensus that you shouldn't be using the word, then you stop using it. You know, the point is, is that, let's face it, when Tottenham fans use the, use the Y word, they are not using it in a, as a critique to the, what's happening in the Labour Party with regards to, um, you know, anti-Semitism and the problems that they have. They're not using it in a way to criticise, you know, or to commemorate um, anti-Semitic attacks that have happened in the United States. It is not that, you know, clever. It is not that... Is not that meaningful and impactful. It is a clumsy co-option used in an insensitive manner by people who have had three or four beers at the pub who aren't doing it in, as a way to combat anti-Semitism. It may have been that case 20, 30 years ago, but that's no longer the case now. And really, it's just, you've always said that word, you're, you want your kid to use it because your dad used it, because your granddad used it, and that is, you know, part of being a Spurs fan. But my argument is, again, you could stop using it tomorrow. The White Hart Lane, you know, the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium is still there. We still play in black, blue and white. We sometimes disappoint. Sometimes we play really well. You, your pub that you go and have your pre-match pint in is still there. The burger van is still there. The long walk in the rain to Seven Sisters or to what, you know, White Hart Lane Station or when it's renamed Tottenham Hotspur Station is still there. It's just you don't use that word because the world has moved on. And it's more important to respect other people's viewpoints and other segments of society than it is maintaining a clumsy co-option of a word and a term and a viewpoint even. (laughs) So to my mind, really, where you start with combating racism is that you draw this line. And on that line, that means Tottenham fans can't use the Y word. You know, the Divock Origi banner should never have happened. And, the, you know, players, supporters, broadcasters have to be more aware of blind spots, of, you know, cultural stereotypes. And that actually these are the gateway, the entry point into racism and racist viewpoints as a whole. If you start with the premise that, oh, black players are more athletic than white players, or 
or Indians just like cricket, or all the you know foreign players are you know lazy. Any number of which are just absolutely fundamentally untrue. Yeah, then it becomes you know in effect a hop, skip, and a jump away from what you had at you know Haringey Borough. I think for me personally, I'm not in any way, shape, or form surprised that. The first game, you know, in this country that was abandoned due to racism was at Haringey Borough. I think that's very instructive in the sense that I didn't realise that Haringey Borough had a football team. Or if I did, it was in the vaguest sense of the word. It's only when they got to the first round of the FA Cup last year and played AFC. It was a Friday night game and I watched the back end of it after coming back from... Um, seeing my friends for a Friday drink. And it's a wonderful football club. It brings, you know, it's brings the whole community together. It's the sort of place where the manager is the only full-time employee, the chairman, you know, it's the club that makes a loss every single year. And it's constantly battling against the odds and these cup runs are keeping this football club together. And Personally, if I had my druthers, I would love a day that that stadium gets redeveloped and that, you know, let's say, Tottenham youth team play there, as well as Haringey Borough, maybe the Tottenham women's youth team. And if they build the stadium big enough, maybe one day the Tottenham women's team. You know, playing a hot, you know, a short walk away from the stadium, keeping the ethos of the club in Tottenham and keeping that football club alive and, you know, as a beacon for the community and bringing people together. But the point is, is that to the outside world and to, I think, the world, you know, the small minority of racists, Haringey Borough is just a, stands for, I think, multiculturalism in, in England and the right wing and to some extent left wing criticism of it. And, and I would imagine that those two... You know, Yeovil Town fans who have now been arrested and charged under public order offences, you know, with the the racial element to the crimes, for them, this was a chance to stick it to all of the elements of multicultural Britain that, you know, racists hate. In other words, Yeovil and Haringey Borough as football teams, uh, in terms of local community clubs, are the same. Just because you know Somerset is ninety five percent white and Haringey Borough is you know multi ethnic, multi racial, they're the same clubs. They're both fighting against the odds. They're both bringing the communities together. They're both proud and passionate to be who they are. And that fourth round qualifying game should have been a absolute celebration of community clubs and the fact that you know Yeovil have always had this history of being a a team that thrived on cup upsets and that they were now the big team and the Haringey Borough, who are now the, you know, cup upset, you know, re in at least in recent history, you know, cup upset, lovable underdogs. That should have been a wonderful thing. It should not have been ruined by two people, you know, or you know, a, a small minority. Now, I don't think that Yeovil, as a football club, is racist. I don't think that they were... You know, in any way, shape, or form, as an outfit, casual to the you know threat of racism. I just think it's a couple of bigots 
who wanted to go there and cause trouble and have done. And I think it's notable that there's been universal support. You know, the FA haven't cracked down on it, you know, haven't, you know, blamed them for the game being abandoned, and that everyone understands that actually that needed to take place. Because I think if you, let's say, you have a couple of idiots in a 50,000-seat arena, you know, the fans might, you know, the players might hear it, but it might hear it in isolation. I think it is a visceral, different situation if you're sitting there and the person is three or four feet away from you, spitting at you and shouting racial invectives. That is just, a, you know, a completely different situation and one which really the, there was no other option. You had to abandon that game. And the and the reactions in comparison for the couple of times when, you know, in Italy there was a friendly when, you know, um, the Milan AC Milan players walked off and that wasn't greeted by universal acclaim and a universal understanding when, you know, players in Italy have gone up to the referees and said, I'm being racially abused, they've been themselves yellow carded. You know, that is, that to me is a, is a positive sign. I suppose the way how I would see it is that I feel domestic football in this country can and should be an oasis free from racism and that there's a clear policy of zero tolerance. Now, I think the demarcation point needs to be really a, a sort of wider discussion on prevention. Now, I think one of the I think clear elements that we have is, is that I think in international football and... Um, European football in the sense of you know, the UEFA League and the Champions League. There's a sense that you know, fines and partial ground closures has not stopped the scourge of racism. And I think it's interesting, I was reading about you know, Millwall and how you know, they've been criticised, or the FA have been criticised for fining Millwall what seemed to be poultry amounts for you know the racist behaviour of some of their fans and that actually what they're trying to do now is to you know institute policies where instead of just putting the fine down or three points lost is that actually they're trying to encourage you know and to support Millwall in their efforts to re-educate fans and to try and stop it you know being proactive rather than just reactive. And I think one of the things that's been very impressive about Chelsea's policies is that in, you know, spent putting so much effort into, you know, trying to combat, you know, the small pockets of anti-Semitism that, you know, that Chelsea did have and that, you know, West Ham have. Is that it's the extent to which we hold a club, you know, liable. Now, I would say that the burden of proof needs to be that the club can prove that they have tried to stop it, that they have been proactive and not reactive and that they've sat there and, you know, I think one of the things that frustrates me is with some clubs is, and this is from my own personal experience, is that I have seen clubs that have brought 3,000 away fans and there have been significant pockets shouting horrible things and nothing seemed to change. And the point is is that 
in a very small pocket, you know, 3,000, let's say, because it was at the old White Hart Lane, and so the 3,000 allocation, I think it was 1,500 on top, 1,500 on the bottom. And most of the abuse was coming from the top tier of the stand. So in other words, it's not a huge amount of space. And for West Ham to basically, and this was a club that did it, it was when um, Adolf's going to get you and when they made gas noises. And it was like, I felt that, and I remember reading it on one of the West Ham fanzines, they were trying to claim that it was, uh, I think, 20 or 30 fans at the most. And that was just complete bullshit. If I'm sitting there at the back end of the Paxton Road and I'm hearing gas noises from, I would imagine, what, 120, 130 feet away in a 36,200 sellout, the idea that it was just 20 or 30 individuals is laughable that they could make that much noise, that they could be heard all across the stadium. Or that if it was just 20 or 30, that the 2,800, sorry, the 2,980 other West Ham fans that were there managed not to stop these people or to get a steward or to get these people ejected. And that's the thing. I think the point is is that it's clearly evident that Millwall Football Club have tried very hard to, you know, limit, you know, the racist actions of the minority that is there. And the problem is is that this is a minority that has existed for an extended period of time. You know, Millwall have been having their ground closed since the 20s and 30s. It has always been a rough, tough neck of the woods and has rough, t- you know, tough football fans. And that, you know, even with the best will in the world, is that at some point, it, I don't think you're ever going to be in a full situation where, you know, Millwall can say, there will be no racist activities that you know associated with people with a Millwall you know shirt scarf hat whatever. What I would say is is that as long as Millwall Football Club can say when you know and if this happens we have got a stringent you know zero tolerance policy to then stop it so that it doesn't become an issue like it has done let's say with you know if you're looking at sort of clubs that you would traditionally feel you know have racism in it and you know naturally you know you'd say Lazio no Lazio Cagliari and I think it's important that you know the FA and Premier League also need to take the lead on this in terms of properly funding you know kick it out and instead of them you know having an office above a pizza place in Kilburn actual proper offices with a proper budget you know with an expanded staff because this is a problem that has come out of the you know, British political settlement. In other words, there's been a clear rise in, you know, instances of racial assault, racial abuse, as a result of Brexit. You know, all across the world, you know, you're having a rise in, you know, a rise with, you know, far-right parties, with some far-left parties. And that this rise, you know, wasn't happening in the, you know, 90s and early 2000s when you know when politics was a bit more you know stable both at home and abroad you know as i've said i i feel that you know the aims of you know as fans and you know the the league the clubs the players all of us have a role to play in making english football a haven from racism you know that is the bit that we can 
control. That is the bit where there is money in the budget for. That is the bit where, you know, we can strive to be the best we can do on this one. And I do feel that in comparison with other countries that we have taken the lead in. But we can always do more. Which I think then leads us really into the discussions on what happened in Bulgaria. I was so proud of how our players and you know the coaching staff you know dealt with such a difficult, volatile, you know, painful and hurtful, you know, situation. One that none of these people should have ever had to or, or dealt with. But we don't live in a perfect world. There is and I think sometimes it gets lost in all of the coverage is that how awful it must be for you know those black players that were playing for England that night to have had to shoulder such a, a tremendous burden and that and that that burden was just so similar to all of the of the trailblazers of players in the 50s and 60s and 70s the first you know wave of black players to make a an impact in English football and the sort of horrendous abuse that they had to take and that the storism that they had to do it wasn't just that they had to deal with this racism is that they had to they had to excel is that they didn't just have to be league average they had to be brilliant just to get into the first team and then they had to then shoulder this burden on their own with very little support and that actually really 40 50 years on another generation of football players is having to, to deal with this. And I can understand where the, the group of people that argued that the England players should have walked off. And, and the way how I would posit it is this, is that the players all had a meeting and you know Gareth Southgate and they had an agreed strategy for what to do if this was going to happen and then sadly it did happen and uh, they all agreed to carry on with the game and they played the football in the right manner and they, they absolutely battered you know Bulgaria and you know they dealt with all of the stresses and the and the emotions in just an absolutely fantastic way. They did it as a team. So whether you agree with them or not as to whether they should have carried on, I think the important thing is to respect that they agreed something before the game, they agreed during the game, and that they stayed united in doing so. And that, and that they showed the same level of stoicism and strength that you know the first generation of black players showed and that they did fight for what they believed in and they fought for this country in terms of making a stand against racism and i think that's a wonderful powerful thing and that there is a sense that we all wish racism would go away tomorrow and that it would just dissipate and that maybe if there was three or four major instances that that would lead to a sea change and that it would stop happening. 
And I don't think that's ever that is going to happen. I think the battle of racism, as I said at the start of this podcast, is the Western Front. It is inches and it is going to take years. And so I think the issue that people had who were on the walk-off side of the argument is that it would make such a huge impact and that you know things would have changed as a result. I think what it comes down to is almost a Disneyification of sporting racism. You know, there's so many of these wonderful films that, you know, are powerful and, you know, it's feel good. In other words, you had um, Remember the Titans, uh, 42. You had um, The Express. And it's where racism gets solved in a hundred minutes or less. And always at the end of it, there's a lovely, feel-good, unambiguous ending where, you know, the racists are defeated, you know, the white teammates and the black teammates are all as one, you know, and we're all going to the sunny uplands that, you know, the liberal view of history and sporting and racism is that it will eventually dissipate and that where we are today in comparison with where we were back in the 50s and 60s is light years away. But... The problem is is that it's as powerful as they are, it is wish fulfillment. It's what you wished had happened. In other words, you would wish that if the England players had walked off against Bulgaria and that game had been abandoned, that somehow there would be some huge sway of opinion across Europe and the world that would have led to huge change happening and that, you know, the fight against racism would have a major incidence and then things would, you know, old, you know, improve overnight. That there would be fines and bans and the thing is is that if you were to let's say chuck Bulgaria out of the qualification, that doesn't mean that Bulgaria will stop having racism in its football grounds. Or that, you know, the pockets of racism that exist and those fans and those ultras that rocked up to the stadium would somehow be removed. The point is, is that if you chuck them out, it just, it becomes out of sight, out of mind. In other words, the only reason that we have any vague interest in Bulgarian racism at its football ground is because we played them. Or if one of our teams was to play them in the Europa League or the Champions League. Now the point is is that Bulgarian teams don't tend to qualify or get through far enough in the Champions League to play. It's going to be the occasional Europa League game. One off here and there. And the point is is that Bulgaria haven't qualified for tournaments really since the late 90s. When you had the Stoichkov team that got to the semi-finals. Actually sorry, quarter-finals. Sorry, right the first time, I think they got to the semi-finals of um, World Cup 19. I would argue that keeping them in the tent, keeping them within world and European football, is a way of actually being able to keep the pressure on them. You know, to actually fight back meaningfully. And that means that, you know, UEFA and FIFA have to do more, and they really do. But my point is, is that as a result of this game... You know, the manager and the head of the FA have been sacked, have been asked to resign. So the point is, is that, you know, as 
That to me is justification in a decision not to walk off. There has been an impact. In other words, if you you will now know if you want to head the Bulgarian FA, if you want to be Bulgarian manager, you cannot pretend that racism, you know, if it happens, you can't just pretend it didn't. You can't deny it. And that actually there will be actions, there will be consequences. And I personally hope that, you know, the the rules and the punishment for racism you know, are strengthened in terms of bans, in terms of having to play behind closed doors. You know, there, there, there's so much more that can be done. But I think it's more important to take, you know, an ele- a sort of nuanced view of it, is that in this country there is a huge amount of people, you know, there's a consensus. We don't want racism to be part of our, you know, football landscape. And we are willing to put money into it. And the owners are willing to put money into it. Whereby the problem is, is that if you're talking about the Bulgarian FA and the money that they have and that the resource that they have and that the political will, if that doesn't exist, then in reality, how do you expect them to combat racism? How much money can they put into it? What can be done? How can they, in that crumbling, you know... Soviet-era stadium, how could they have done better? Now, obviously they could have done. If 200 people all dressed in black all go sit in the you know very prominent seats that will be seen on television, yes, that is pretty much self-evident that they are up to something, and likely it's no good. However, it's important to note that Bulgaria made efforts that other nations haven't done is that they got those 200 people to leave just before half-time. Is that they made some efforts. It was it was probably too little too late, but they did something. In other words, there is still a power that they want to still be playing and they still want the hope of qualifying for the World Cup and the Euros. And that they will take some form of steps. They will get rid of these people during the game rather than previous examples where they have just remained there. In other words, football cannot stop racism in Eastern Europe or in other parts of the world. What they can do is limit those effects. So the point is is that no country wants to be the first to have its game abandoned. And that is progress. It is Small progress, but it is progress nonetheless. Progress that wouldn't happen if you just chucked them out. Now, obviously, it's very easy for me to say, as someone who is not a professional footballer, who is white, middle class, to say, you know, effectively we are then saying to players playing for England in the future, in those countries, you know, where racism is prevalent, you might have to, that you will take that risk. That there will likely be these horrible incidences... But, and I think it comes down to a personal choice. And I think I would have no criticism whatsoever if someone said, I'm retiring from international football. I don't want to deal with this. This is not my, you know, this is not my problem. I didn't, I'm a football player. I didn't sign up to trying to eradicate racism and having to be on the front line and having to, you know, have the same stoicism of some of players in the sixties and seventies. The point is, is that the players in the sixties and seventies didn't have a choice. If they walked off the field, would anyone have supported them? Very unlikely. 
I get the feeling that those people would have just been ostracised, sold, that the home fans wouldn't have supported them, away fans wouldn't have supported them. I don't think the media would have supported or even understood or even attempted to understand. The point is now, you do have a choice. And it is, I think, a uniquely personal one. But we can't sit there and constantly see ourselves as being morally superior. Just because we are trying to fight racism at home and that we've made probably more efforts than other countries. We can do more. And I think if the England team, because of its talent, because of its multiracial background and how they've all stuck together, if that is a way of, and if that can be a positive, and if that means that, you know, although as traumatic as it is, if it leads to change, and that means that the FA has to then, you know, make more of an effort in UEFA and in FIFA to sit there and say, this can't just be a handful of countries. This can't just be France, Germany, England, you know, having to, and the players share, having to deal with that burden. It is really up to the the powers that be to make a more of a stand and to do more. Which really means that us as a country has to deal with its hooligan problem. And the argument is is that we have a political settlement that has tolerated you know, jingoism and the idea of English exceptionalism. And as a result, when our away fans, you know, go abroad, they get drunk and they act like idiots and they say they sing stupid songs and we need to do more to stop that. We can't just sit there and shrug and say, well, 3,000 idiots will go to Amsterdam, 3,000 idiots will go to Prague... And, well, what can you do about it? Because that's the same attitude that Bulgaria t- took to an extent. Well, oh dear. You know, oh, it's happened. It's a small minority. We tried our best. And we need to do more. Because really, you can't necessarily deal with racism if you can't deal with, you know, that kind of level of jingoistic, you know, offensiveness that, you know, comes with, you know, performative, drunken, you know, English arseholery. <laughs> you know, when I was talking about, you know, Disneyification of sporting racism, let's say you take the film 42. It's a wonderful, you know, uplifting story, and it, but it's tragic in the sense that Jackie Robinson had to overcome and had to take on so much abuse just to break the colour line in, in baseball. The thing is, is that, but Jackie Robson in of himself didn't solve racism in baseball. You know, for years afterwards, it took years for teams to fully integrate. It took even more years after that for there to be black African-American coaches, executives, managers. The point is, is that although sports and, and racism, when you have someone, let's say, break a colour line or someone be the first you know, manager, the first executive. It is important culturally, but it doesn't move the dial politically. In other words, Jackie Ray, sorry, Jackie Ray Robinson in 1947 did not, did not speed up civil rights. 
it didn't happen in 1948, 49, 50. It happened well into the mid-60s. You know, it was an important stepping stone, but it was only that. It was only, in other words, plenty of people were fine with Jackie Robinson playing professional baseball, but were not interested in, you know, stopping Jim Crow and segregation in the South. You know, and in films like, you know, Remember the Titans and, you know, Express, you then create, you know, we've, Hollywood has created these sort of problematic character types. So you've got the tough white coach mentor character. And the idea is, is that at first they're hard on the, you know, young African-American sports star, but eventually, you know, it helps him and, you know, gets the kid to play brilliantly well and the, the coach learns a few lessons by the end of the film and these are where these kind of attitudes, you know, help create the Peter Beardsleys of this world. It's like the ending of Express. It's about the Syracuse uh, college football team and that they went to play the, in the Cotton Bowl down in Texas and there was horrendous abuse of the, you know, African-American running back. And that at the end of the film, not to give a huge spoiler away, is that Syracuse win and that their after-match kind of banquet dinner is supposed to be segregated. So all of the players then decide to get into the bus and boycott it so that they could then, you know, eat with their te- you know African-American teammates. Fundamentally not true. Never happened. There, you know, so I, from what I've read and understand is that actually the team did go to the you know banquet, but that's the point. Is that it's always this idea that actually that's what you wish would have happened. In the same way that you know, with Jackie Robinson and the Brooklyn Dodgers, is that they still did spring training, the which is pre-season training down in the south because that's where the weather was and in the end they had to create their own training facilities at Vero Beach because actually they had such problems with you know because the rest of the south wasn't prepared to integrate and wasn't prepared to make an exception for you know Jackie Robinson and in the end so what that becomes is is that Vero Beach just became a oasis of race relations but Outside of the, you know, guard fence to that facility, it was still the South, it was still racist, and it was still segregated. (laughs) Which is really where my, you know, argument against the idea that a walk-off would have made that kind of difference that we wish it had have done. I think in the end, I would argue I don't believe from looking back on the history of these kind of events I don't think they have as much of a long term impact as we wish they did. They ought to. In other words if England walk off due to racism that should make a huge change but I'm not sure it would have done. I think it's important also to note that actually what sort of political levers we have you know in terms of trying to stop racism trying to eradicate it is that one of the most powerful tools we still have 
is that nobody wants to be called a racist. Even the people that are doing, you know, the racial abuse. Oh, this classic one was the Inter fans um, writing an open letter, uh, one of the Inter supporters group writing an open letter on Facebook to a Romulu Lukaku saying that the racist abuse that he'd suffered down in Calgary was not racist at all, was just simply trying to put him off and was a, a sign of respect. And the thing is, is that actually when you, because I've just finished reading a book about Italian history, and that actually Italy has a profound problem with inner racism. The idea that, that between the North and the South, and that the South is seen as non-European. In other words, what you know, the sort of a classic, a traditional banner, you know, offensive banner that is sometimes shown at Northern Italian grounds, it, you know, for the away fans is welcome to Europe, and the sense that you know historically, you know, you know, Southern Italians haven't been seen as you know, full Italians. They've been seen you know because of because of history. They were seen to be more you know African or Arabic or have more in common with those cultures than let's say the the European culture of Northern Italy. Of course, it's all complete rubbish, but it's fascinating that. In the South, you still have, you know, that you have, you know, awful, you know, terrible racism, you know, that is, you know, daily, hourly, you know, for, you know, black players who are playing for and against these teams. But really what this open letter was trying to say is, is that really on the underlying levels, they wanted a sort of 90 minute permit to use racial abuse in the stadium, but that that, that was just effectively letting off steam and that actually in their daily lives outside of this 90 minute permit they wouldn't do racism on the street and that's the thing is that once you remove that once let's say if you were to you know ban countries it becomes the death penalty the nuclear option and and that banning them isn't going to automatically make these places liberal democracies, you know. And it's not going to lead to a huge expansion in anti-racism. You know, it, there's not going to be a Eastern European version of kick it out of, of football. As long as there is an escalation, as long as there is more effort made by UEFA and FIFA to crack down on this but also the importance that actually it's not something that can be solved in one world cup cycle it's not going to be able to be fixed in one or two years it's going to need years of effort years of punishment but as long as you are making some form of progress as long as you know when these things happen is that as long as there is countries desperate not to be the first to have a game abandoned that is better than having four or five nations out of you know, you know European and world football because then there's no outside influence in other words there is going to be no you know no incentive for them to change their ways or to put the money that they don't have into 
stop it, especially in countries where there are right-wing leaders who have no interest in stopping racism, who actually use it as a political tool. In other words, you know, what is more powerful, the government or its FA? And if the government are enacting racist policies, you can't be surprised when the locals have racist views. And it can't be the FA having to therefore act as a NGO to not only run football, but to fix it. They can do more, but it also needs more support from the overarching organisations. And as distasteful as it can be, I think, in the long term, keeping them in the tent is better than just putting it out of your mind. I mean, it's not an exact comparison, but look what happened with South Africa. I fully agree with the sporting ban on apartheid. I felt apartheid is so wrong that something like that needs to be done. And But it once you made them a pariah state, it didn't change anything. In other words, they still carried on with apartheid. They still maintained the system. And just because they and not playing cricket, well, at international level, not playing in you know, rugby world cups, wasn't the end of the world. You know, there is a limit to what sport can do. I mean, to end this podcast, I think I'm going to focus on the actions of UEFA and um, FIFA. Now, FIFA specifically. Now, in Iran, um, there's been... It's not actually an official ban. But women weren't allowed to enter the stadiums. So the authorities' viewpoints... So in other words, it wasn't something written down, but it was just something that was culturally enforced. Was that um, the use of language, the atmosphere at football games the you know elements of violence meant that it was unsuitable for women to you know, bear witness to this and it really does come back to almost the what we were saying previously in the earlier part of the podcast about the concept of football being a a safety valve and that you could let out all this frustration you know because it you know you Iranian society you know it does have, you know, repression, there is issues and that actually allowing, you know, people to go to their, you know, watch their local team and kick off a bit was beneficial for, you know, maintaining law and order. Now the thing is, you could produce a fantastic and very creditable argument to say that Iran should be ban it, banned from, you know, competing for international you know, football until they drop this ban. And as far as I'm concerned, I don't think FIFA have done anywhere near enough to put pressure on Iran to do so. But the point is is that if you did ban Iran, what is there to stop them actually just carrying on and saying, well, never mind, it's just the World Cup. You know, it's not as if Iran have had any level of long-term success in World Cups. The thing is, is that the dream of getting to World Cups is, and European Championships is so important to you know Bulgaria, to you know Montenegro. Despite the fact that in reality, World Cups and European Championships 
it's always the same teams. It's the you know Western you know countries. It is your France, your England, your Germany's, your Italians, your Spanish, your Portuguese. You know all of the other countries, the countries that we would chuck out tomorrow, aren't likely to qualify. Or if they are, they're just happy to be there and get knocked out in the first round. The point is, if you chucked five of them out, what's to stop them deciding to have their own tournament where, you know, nobody, you know, and there's nobody to stop them, you know, it being all white players, all white stadiums, you know, and therefore being a way of, you know, sticking a couple, you know, sticking, you know, a finger up at, you know, the decadent Western, you know, liberal, you know, side of Europe where, you know, there is the money and opportunities that don't necessarily exist in parts of Eastern Europe, or in, you know, use the wider thing of Iran. In other words, does, do we need Iran being in the World Cup more than Iran needing to be in the World Cup? At the moment, my argument would be that Iran loves being in the World Cup. It's a huge thing. It's, you know, their fans are passionate. And at the moment, they've eventually now got to a situation where women are starting to be let in. Sports isn't going to make Iran a liberal democracy. But at least you've had some level of progress. It's small, it's incremental, but it is absolutely better than nothing. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, one of the female fans that got arrested for dressing up as a man to get into the stadium, uh, she killed herself. She set herself on fire, I believe, outside the courthouse. And that's a tragedy and that should never have happened. This is that's not the only tragedy that is happening, you know, in Iran. It is not the only bit of repression, but at least there's been a form of progress, and that keeping them in the tent has allowed this to happen. Where if you had chucked them out of the tent, I don't believe women would be watching, you know, football in a stadium for the first time. And I hope it. I sincerely hope it continues, and I hope it's at least some way, you know on to getting better rights for women in Iran. I mean, take the Russian World Cup. We had this whole fear at the beginning of, before the tournament started, that there would be, you know, racist abuse in, you know, for the black players and fans and supporters. And yet, Russia was able, I mean, let's face it, their league has endemic racism and very little has been done to stop it. And yet, for a month, they managed to stop, you know, racist abuse in stadiums. You know, it let everyday Russians see the benefits of racial tolerance. You know, I don't think that that happening was, you know, worth having, you know, Russia get the tournament in the first place. I thought that decision was wrong and was, you know, likely... You know, influenced by corruption, much in the same way that Qatar is, and uh, it's interesting to note that you know the Qatar authorities have you know when asked about you know homosexuality because as a country it debars it, it bars it. You know they have said that they will they will not crack down on you know gay fans who are you know, if they decide to go to Qatar to watch their teams play. at least shows that being in the tent has some positives. Again, we could do more, FIFA and UEFA could do more, 
but it's you know there's a limitation on what soft power can do but in comparison as a result of the world cup being in qatar there's been a lot more effort put into you know trying to improve the lives of you know migrant laborers who are still dying and some you know limited reforms have been done the point is is until the light of the world cup shined on qatar and how they were treating these migrant laborers it is a it's something that had been going on for years that hadn't you know got into the public eye in the same way that the amount of deaths on these stadiums so does hosting the world cup mean qatar will take will you know um decriminalize hom homosexuality um do i think that they will stop you know the awful conditions migrant laborers are in no but there has there been some small progress as a result of it yes the battle against racism at home and abroad is really two separate fronts on the same war the fight at home is one of of education of and awkward conversations and a commitment to stopping even the blind spots, the the cultural biases, you know, you know, the commitment that clubs, that the FA, that fans ourselves, that we can all do better in terms of pushing that front on even another inch of realizing that this isn't something that's going to go away tomorrow, but that actually. That making England and Britain a oasis from you know the racism that is endemic in our everyday life is something that we can achieve, and it may not be tomorrow, it may not be next year, but if you're willing to fight for it, if you're willing to engage in the exhausting struggle, that actually we really can make process progress, and when it comes to fighting racism abroad that's a much more complicated fight one that needs to be fought at at you know governmental level you know with fifa and uefa and something where it may have to be that this generation of england players have to be a beacon for for fighting prejudice and unfortunately they may well have to you know suffer more indignities you know to fight for the progress that we all wish to see thank you for listening